Welcome to the Hallie Casser Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. And now your host for the hour, Hallie Casser Jane. And hi, everyone, and welcome to the Hallie Caster Jane Show. I'm your host, Hallie Caster Jane. As always, I am so happy to have you here with me. Today, the Hallie Caster Jane Show is sponsored by my very good friends at the 29th edition of the Miami Book Fair International, November 11th through 18th in downtown Miami at Miami-Dade College. Among the 300-plus authors from around the world, Tom Wolfe, Juno Diaz, Anne Lamott, Lemony Snicket, Robert Cairo, and Emma Donahue. For more information, visit MiamiBookFair.com. Before we get started, I invite you all to join our chat room live right here on our Blog Talk Radio page where we promise to engage you in a lively discussion. Hi, guys in the chat room. It is always nice to have you here. Today, we've got a special show. Today on the Hallie Castle Jane Show, we're talking burlesque. And do I have a lineup for you? In case you missed it, Burlesque is making a comeback. And with Burlesque House's shows are opening up all over the world. Today I'll be talking with Travis S.D., writer, producer, and historian about the history of Burlesque, with writer-filmmaker Liz Goldwyn about the dazzle and the dismay of Burlesque, with the wonderful Angie Pontani, Burlesque dancer, choreographer, producer, and customer, and with the very, very special Dixie Evans, a burlesque legend built by the top burlesque producers, Harold Minsky, as the Marilyn Monroe of burlesque in the 1950s. So, folks, curtain up, light the lights. We've got nothing to hit but the heights as the Hallie Caster Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds and lovers of the art of the tease, brings you burlesque. Up first, the Hallie Catcher Jane's good friend, Trav S.D., performer, writer, producer. He is best known for his 2005 book, No Applause, Just Throw Money, the book that made vaudeville famous. He has contributed to the New York Times, American Theater, The Village Voice, Time Out New York, Reason, and many other publications. His plays and performance pieces have been produced at Joe's Pub and La Mama, La Mama, La Mama, my God, Trav, whenever I know you're coming on to get excited, um, and many other venues in New York City, London, and regionally. Since 1995, Trav SD has venues uh, in New York City, London, regionally, did I say that already? And has presented hundreds of New York City's top variety acts through his American vaudeville theater. We do love Trav here on the Hallie Jane Show, and welcome back, buddy. Let's yeah. miss some time yourself. <laughs> I'm having one of my like days. ready to every, be a talker. Yeah, every every show day for me is a crazy day. You know that, right, darling? <laughs> <laughs> so listen to me. We're talking burlesque, and um, what a subject this is. There are a lot of people who think they know what burlesque is, but there are generations that don't have a clue. So give the audience what exactly burlesque is, and talk a little bit about where it came from. Well, it's a lot older than a lot of people think or would would um, 
imagine. It actually goes back to the mid-19th century, uh, and it's changed a lot over time. You know, it's one of those flexible words. Um, Surely you have heard it used applied to comedy, right? Um, Mel Brooks's movies are burlesques of things. And they used to actually have stage plays like that in the 19th century where they'd make fun of the latest hit shows or whatever. And at a certain point, these ladies came from uh, London, Lydia Thompson and her British blondes. And um, this was a time when even ballet was considered risque. The, the idea of like having the legs visible to the public in the Victorian era was very scary <laughs> to some people. To see to show an ankle was you know terrifying. Risque, so, risque. Um, yeah, and it, I think it's largely due to Lydia Thompson that that we have this very odd mixture of this art form that combines ladies showing off their body parts for the titillation of the audience and uh, comedy. Because, you know, real burlesque is a combination of those things. So, and then over time, you know, um, towards the end of the 19th century, it became more of a variety show. And then uh, this lady, Little Egypt, gave a presentation at the Chicago World's Fair that involved belly dancing, which was very exotic and very racy for its time. It would show the midriff and, you know, the, the gyrations, very snake-like, very unVictorian. And then, um, the, you know, what most people think of as burlesque, the striptease doesn't come in until quite late in its history, surprisingly late, uh, the 1920s, like the late 20s. And then when the Depression started to take a bite out of the the uh, box office, uh, they started to lean on it a bit more and make comedy less an emph- emph- emphasis. And uh, towards the, the end of the 30s and the the late the early 40s is when it actually died out burlesque per se and then after that striptease continued in like nightclubs um, and you'd still have stand-up comedians and jazz musicians and stuff with the dancers um, Lenny Bruce for example came up in the 50s uh, and he started out in those kind of nightclubs kind of where probably where he got his potty mouth right and um, and then you know it's not really until the 1960s that that uh things really change and there are changes in laws and things and you've got pornography and stuff and then then the 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 kind of art of burlesque dancing kind of goes out of it and you get the topless clubs and and which is i think unfortunately what a lot of people maybe still think when burlesque is talked about because that word does kind of still get used with reference to those kind of so-called gentlemen's clubs but uh, really, when in when you're talking about the revival, which started in the 1990s, what they're reviving is is the, the older classical, you know, 30s and 40s and 50s kind of spirit. So, so okay, so let's let's look at this. I mean, because from my research, okay, it goes way back. I mean, Shakespeare was considered uh, burlesque uh, in A Midnight Summer's Dream. Chaucer, Miguel de Cervantes. Well, yeah, yeah, the cross dressing for sure. Yeah, right. And and so so I guess what I'm getting to here is it and and you made the point it goes from A to Z and somewhere and probably mostly because of that nightmare with um with what comes up you know the art of the striptease becomes pornography in a way yeah um, right right and so yeah. it, but it does it connects to Broadway to Hollywood to movies to all of these things um it's become like an errant child so it, you know because of this <laughs> sex yeah sex, totally. Right. So let's and talk some of these about shows, that. Yeah, sure. The, 
because what I want to get to is um, this thing about comedy and parody and the yeah. art of the strip tease versus taking one's clothes off to titillate. Right, because in some, you know, for for many many decades, uh, there wasn't really disrobing at all per se. There were suggestive dancing, suggestive movement and stuff, but the disrobing didn't really happen for decades. Um, and then, interestingly, in certain shows that are that would you would consider to be more uh, mainstream or uh, uh, you know sort of less declassés, Broadway shows certain reviews. Like you know, you've heard of the Ziegfeld Follies and George White scandals and others of these shows. They would get quite naked. Um, you know, there, there might be some sort of um, a sheer material um, between the audience and uh, them. But uh, you know, there, in other words, the the Broadway shows were more risque than the burlesque shows. The Broadway shows were more risque than the burlesque shows. Yeah, in the teens um, and twenties. Right. So talk to me because, you know, uh, I, some people might remember you because you were on our show on the Hammersteins and you've written this just fantastic book, um, you know, going back into vaudeville. The difference between vaudeville and burlesque, because they were concurrent. They ran concurrent. Yeah, and they sort of bleed into each other all the time. You know, like, for example, certain uh, like Phil Silvers and Burt Lahr two very famous comedians who worked in both vaudeville and burlesque. I, I often say that burlesque is vaudeville's evil twin. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the place where it's like, you can, vaudeville actually existed because certain uh, certain entrepreneurs wanted to clean up what was happening in saloons. And so they took out all the swear words and all the references to drinking and sex and stuff so that they could sell tickets to women and kids. So vaudeville shows were like family entertainment, almost like the Disney um, of its time, and a lot more variety. Right, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, so, like you know, variety meaning you could have, you know, jugglers and, uh, oh, magicians and, and ventriloquists and stuff, whereas burlesque tended to be more about comedy sketches and... Um, lines of chorus girls and then the dances individual specialty dances by the girls that sort of thing you you made the point to me and i thought it was very well taken that a no normal guy takes his date to a topless bar but people go on dates to burlesque shows all the time yeah and maybe that so, helps you know, define the difference between the, the two in an odd way i mean yeah there's a whole spectrum of people who are attracted to modern burlesque but on on the on the one hand there are people i think who are attracted to it because of its innocence uh, in other words, it's very retro and backward-looking and looks back to a time when it wasn't where you'd go into scores or some similar place, you know, a gentleman's club, and they're already topless and pole dancing and stuff. This is more of a scene where there is comedy, there is magic, there's uh, a lot of thought put into the, you know, costuming, and the routines have a lot of humor, and, you know, they're like short little theater pieces. They're choreographed. So tell me one thing, buddy. You yeah. love burlesque. I know how much. Why? What is it about <laughs> burlesque that turns you on so much? Well, uh, it, it is probably more of the retro kind of thing. You know, the, my first book is about vaudeville, and there's no real way to study vaudeville without studying burlesque. And I love the, I really love the comedy. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't love the dancers. You know, I'm, uh, but um. The, it's the charm of it for me. 
you know it's it's the whole package it's a, it's about life you know it's comedy and sex and beauty and uh even drama um all wrapped up in one package and it's very american you know only americans have this kind of hang up where like you know there's a there's a special you know in in European art, they would never dream of having a, a sort of market with its own niche for the human body. It's already in the paintings, in the movies, and, you know, Sophia Loren is plenty sexy, and she's just a movie star, you know. But in, in the U.S., it's kind of like it's it's its own it's, it's its own back alley, so to speak. It, it, I'll tell you what, I've had a fascinating week exploring this um and uh, I have to tell everybody, and I'm going to say it a number of times during the show, the show would not have been possible without Trav's extraordinary, extraordinary contribution to it. So I want to thank to my good friend, Trav S.D., who I think I'm going to make my uh, my liaison between the theater and our show, um, if he'll do it. Um, thanks. 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 My thanks pleasure. Again. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, it was just great. Thanks, Travis D. I just love you. And Mr. Theater himself, that's what I'm going to start calling you. Uh, Travis D.'s current project is Burlesque A Paid's opening in New York at the Soho Playhouse October 12th, where Trav will be discussing the history of burlesque, past and present, like he did on the Halle Kazer Jane show. His next personal appearance will be at the Philadelphia Theater Company, where he will be on a panel discussing great old shtick Judaism in the world of entertainment. Find Trav SD on Twitter at Trav SD, his website, travsd.wordpress.com. Again, oh, Trav, thanks so much. We couldn't have made this happen without you. Thanks, Allie. Thank you. No way to talk about burlesque without talking to writer-filmmaker Liz Goldwyn, who many credit with its revival. Let me give you a little background on Liz Goldwyn. She is a multi-talented Hollywood Zion whose grandfather Samuel built the foundations for what would later become Paramount and MGM Studios. She's held a fascination with vintage clothing and costumes since childhood. That interest gave life to Goldwyn's HBO documentary, Pretty Things, which pays tribute to the grand dames of burlesque golden era and led to the film's companion book of the same title. A graduate from the School of Visual Arts in New York with a BFA in photography and a minor in art history, Goldwyn's love of costumes and the art of the craft and her passion for collecting vintage clothes led to her discovering two stage costumes in a charity shop that she traced to burlesque. Thus began the forging of friendships with the original queens of the striptease. Welcome to the Hallie Kasser Jane Show, Miss Liz Goldwyn. How are you, Liz? Good. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, we're so glad that you could come by. Um, Liz, you are really something else. I got to tell you. I mean, creativity just oozes from every one of your little pores. Um, this is this whole thing. Uh, it's just it's just something what you've put together. This book, Pretty Things, I fell in love with. I never got to see the oh, film. Oh, thank you. It's a fabulous book. It really is. And and uh, just from the art of the book itself. So talk to me. What are pretty things? Are you talking the clothes, the burlesquins? What both? Tell me. Well, when I first got into burlesque, um, which was in 1996, I fell in love with the pretty things, which would be the facade of glamour around burlesque, the costumes themselves, the glitter, 
the sequins, the pin-up photographs of women. Um, and once I got to really know the real-life women and really got in, in depth in their own histories, I realized that it wasn't all glamour and, and glitz and romance and prettiness. There was a lot of ugliness um, in, in the world of burlesque as well. Um, and in the, what these women had to deal with, um, you know, men masturbating in the audience, police raids, not being accepted by polite society. And so I began to, my rose-colored glasses of the, the prettiness was lifted. And one of my subjects, Betty Rowland, the ball of fire, you know, I asked her, I remember asking her, what what to you is, is the, you know, is, is glamour and burlesque? And she said, you know, there's that moment when the curtains rise and you see all these pretty things on stage. And that, to me, is a moment of glamour. And the rest of it, well, you can have it. Hmm. And I, I just love that quote so much that I ended up titling the the book and the film after it. Right. You you love costume, I mean, uh, and the craft of costumes and making them and, and darning and the whole thing, right? Um, and all of that is so essential to the burlesque performer, you know, the gimmick, if you will. It's part of the gimmick anyway. Uh, that great line, what was it, Rose, uh, Gypsy Rosalie said that, right? Everybody has to have you a gotta, gimmick. You gotta, yeah, you got to have a gimmick. you got to have a gimmick. So you, you, it, you, you're you so possessed of this. You say clothing is your pornography. I love that line, how to use it somewhere in here. So tell us about your vast collection of vintage clothes. It, it's it's world known, isn't it? People know about my, my collection. It's true. Um, I have a lot of contemporary designer friends who, you know, sometimes get to get to look through things, or I'll trade, or you know, sometimes I'll lend people things to copy as long as they get one of one and what they copy. Um, ever since I was really young, I I was just very fascinated by that aspect of. Not only art, I would look at paintings um, with my father, and I would just, all I would want to talk about was, oh, that Picasso painting she's wearing a 1919 Czechoslovakian coat. I mean, I don't even know where it came from. <laughs> it just was what what I identified with. I think it made art more personal to me. And the same thing with with movies, with cinema. I I was obsessed with the with costumes. Um, my dad's a big Fellini fan, and the first couple movies I saw were Fellini's Eight and a Half and Roma, and there's like an ecclesiastical fashion show in Roma, and that's what's what stayed with me. And then um, I always had a job from the time I was um, about 12 for, you know, allowance and, and pocket money, and I would save that money and I'd start buying vintage clothes Um you know, around that age, around 13, 14, my friends and I would wear 1940s print dresses or, you know, 30s evening dresses, 50s prom dresses. So it just it was with me from an early age, this idea that through clothing you could reinvent yourself. You could become a different character, and you didn't have to be a movie star to do so. So you start uh, tying in these clothes that you discovered with the women who wore them on stage, right? That's how it kind of began? Yes, I started writing. I started collecting these costumes, and at the time, I was working for Sotheby's um, in a newly founded fashion department in New York City. And I started collecting these costumes, and I found through the global 
group of dealers and museums I was connected to via my work that there was no, not only no specific collection of burlesque costumes worldwide, but there also wasn't a definitive history written on it. So I didn't have any resources with which to research my the things I was collecting. So I, the idea started to grow that I guess I should do this. I, you know, there must be there. I want so. I, what if someone else starts collecting these costumes and they don't know where to look? Um, so I started writing letters to the women whose costumes I was finding. Um, at that time, it was still easy to get the provenance. You know, I, one do, people because I worked at Sotheby's, people would know that I was collecting this stuff, so they would call me up and say, "Oh, I, you know, there's this estate of this woman. She just died, and I found this stuff." And then start. I would sort of one person would lead me to another, and I gradually became connected to this group of women. Unbelievable. So you get possessed, from what I read, (laughs) I love it. And your friends and associates, they didn't quite understand that you were so interested in these burlex queens? Uh, Yeah, I don't think they did, and and I don't think my family did either at first. Um, I always had, in addition to the interest in clothing, I was always very curious about sex and sexuality and um, had a very feminist mother, actually, who, you know, would give me Colette and Simone de de Beauvoir books to read. So I had both sides of the the curiosity about, you know, about sex and sexuality. And then my my mother, who was doing both field work with this issue. Um, and so when I started getting into burlesque, everyone kind of thought, what, what what do you? This is these are women who take their clothes off. What are you doing? Why are you so fascinated by this? But to me, I, I connected it actually back with those with those interests in feminism and in sexuality, as well as the costumes. To me, burlesque kind of embodied those things that I'd always been interested in. There, we're gonna we're gonna travel back to that what you some of the, what you just said, but I, I want there are two things that I want to ask you right now. One is. Um, you found you had respect for these women, and and that is very clear in the book. And talk to me about that respect. I think I was in awe of them. I mean, definitely respected them. Um, I felt so empowered by my relationship with them when I, even looking at these black and white images of them, I saw women who radiated such confident sex appeal. And it was so foreign to me. I was, you know, 17 years old when I started this research, and I certainly did not feel um, in control of, you know, my own sexuality and my body. Um, and I, I think I spent, I think I spent so much time during the interviews just wanting to absorb some of what they had. Um, so I, I had a lot of respect for them, and I also had a lot of respect for what they had been through and how they, you know, sort of managed to, you know, many of them were children of the Depression. They had, it was a hard knock life. It was not easy. Besides the fact that you had to, you know, travel for 11 months a year, you also had to furnish your own wardrobe. That was five or six gowns per season in your repertoire, um, and that was expensive back then. I've published a lot of the records for the costume designers in my books with the with the prices paid in, in inflation it's two to three thousand dollars a costume back then um they also had to you know get, get their own music their own choreography it was it was a tough it was a tough road they traveled and there wasn't the kind of mass adulation that there would be for a pop star for example today right um or an actress it. it was right I, mean, I want to bring you down to uh, the politics. Yeah, I understand. I want to bring you down to the politics of burlesque because stripping, if you will, um, no matter how artful it's done, it's not politically correct amongst a certain segment of the women's movement. And did, what did you run across on that score? 
in terms of the women's movement now? Or yes. I mean, there wasn't obviously was not a women's movement really no. when these women were no, shipping. No, 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 I understand. No, I'm talking about contemporary, of course. No. Well, I think that there's been a, a generation of women of my generation um, who have re. I'm not the only person, you know, who looked at these women and rediscovered them and sort of co-opted them for ourselves as a, as a new wave of feminism. Like I said, my mother was a feminist. I was raised with the, that ideology, but I so I was I was clear, I was very conscious of what the women who came before me fought so hard for our right to vote, burning their bras, Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem, women in the workplace. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to be able to wear pointy bullet bras and, you know, pink <laughs> pink Christian Lacroix dresses um, and still be taken seriously and I felt that these women for me embodied a bit of that that they seemed so in control of their bodies and the teasing and that's what burlesque was about it was look but don't touch um, the, yes exactly I, that that is such a lost art today it's kind of sad isn't it um, when speaking with the burlesque queens were you surprised about who they are as women and how they felt about what they actually did in their careers. I guess I'm leading to this. Did you meet confidence or insecurity, self-respect or self-hatred? All of the above. Um, you did. Yeah, I mean, there it was. It's difficult to generalize um, their their stories, but there it was. You know, the early childhood abuse came up multiple times. Um, there was a lot of insecurity. Um, some of them had, like someone like Zarita, absolutely, you know, sort of overcame any sort of hardships that she had and was a very strong and, and willful woman. I mean, she was... Say who she was, because she... Zarita was an incredible burlesque queen who stripped with two eight-foot-long boa constrictors, Oscar and Elmer. She, in a, she originated the half-man, half-woman dance um she also she was she was outrageous she was out um at in in a time when it was pretty shocking to be a lesbian and she also you know was a huge sex symbol for heterosexual men on stage um there's one great story she told me um of coming out of the stage door in uh, a butchy suit in her words and the three owners of the theater were standing there and said to her you can't come out of the stage door dressed like this she said look i'm on your stage I wear what you want. I wear 19,000 ruffles. I do my act. The audience loves me. I come out on my own time, and I'm going to wear what I want. And if you don't like it, kiss this, which was her attitude. So she was very confident and empowered. And then other other burlesque queens really felt the heat from what polite society felt about them. They felt they, felt they could never overcome yeah. being a stripper. Yeah, it had to be hard uh, to face that, and particularly then. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so different now. How do you think as women they compare to women today? I mean, you really got into the heart and soul of these women, and, and uh, you know, they're all in their 80s, 90s, uh, or whatever now, but how do you think you can compare them to women? Not necessarily even in the business, but women in general. Oof, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a that's tough one. I know. Because I would say... Um, Gosh, that was a tough one. I mean, I, I think still, if you take stripping, to, stripping today isn't isn't what it, it isn't what it was um, because there's not the industry to support burlesque as a popular form of entertainment. But those women were like, 
they're warriors, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> they're warriors. They definitely paved the way um, in terms of female performing artists, pe- neo-burlesque queens. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, neo neo burlesque queens are are performing for you know a pretty savvy groomed audience. They're not they're not traveling or they are tra- a lot of them are traveling around the country playing theaters, but they're not playing theaters to like a general public who who's not familiar with the concept of burlesque. Um, or who's, you know, it's not like vaudeville was. Back in the day, there was vaudeville and burlesque, and it was poor man's entertainment. Today, burlesque is, uh, it's not poor man's entertainment anymore. Right. So, Liz, what did you learn about yourself from your exploring all of this? I learned that it was possible to wear my bra and have brains, <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't have to subvert every aspect of my sexuality to be taken seriously. My clothing definitely changed. Um, as a result, I was was very much would wear sort of A-line, you know, kind of carege 60s shift dresses when I started. I got a lot of heat from them about about what I was what I would wear. And I, as I went on, I started to wear a lot more body conscious clothing. In fact, to the premiere, I, HBO did a premiere for the movie at um, at Lincoln Center in New York, and I wore a vintage 90s pink Versace corset dress, and I. I remember feeling all this fear about it, <laughs> but to me it symbolized it symbolized what I had gone through. Um, well, not only that, sort that of my own sexual awakening at their and, hands. And the argument with your mother around the pink dress that you wanted to wear, I read. <laughs> uh, yes, in. and she was very proud of me, though. They, both my mother and father were there, and they and they were very proud, and and they I think they really understood that what I was trying what I was trying to do was to make a historical document and a love letter to these these women. And so, Liz, might you have been a stripper? I don't think so. I'm t- definitely a director. I, I, I like to be behind the scenes. Um, I did perform in the finale number of my film, um, and I would have fired myself. Uh, I would never do it again. I had to. Do, I did it for the sake of the, of the movie. <laughs> HBO really felt that I needed to. <laughs> they really wanted me to be, you know, include myself in the film and to to do that finale number. But no, I don't like to be up on stage in front of everyone. Unless I'm speaking about, you know, something I know something a lot about, I, I, I prefer to be behind the camera. I got it, kiddo. I got it. Well, listen, ladies, thank you so much for being here. I mean, it's a great book, everybody. I didn't get to see the film. I don't, is it available anywhere? We're working on it. We're working on a DVD release. Oh, but I hope so. But the book is out in paperback as well. And right, and I and yeah. I hope so. So thanks, Lou Squeldron. Her book, Pretty Things, is simply fabulous and available worldwide. And be sure to look for Liz's new short film, Painted Ladies, starring actress Jenna Malone, opening soon. And the highly creative Liz Goldwyn is collaborating with Matt Cosmetics with a collection inspired by Liz's extensive lingerie collection, debuting in November. You can learn more about Liz at www.lgoldwynfilms.com. Her uh, handle on Twitter is GoldilocksLG. Again, thanks, Liz Goldwyn. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. Okay, friends, it's time for a uh, short break so that we can recognize our sponsor. Don't go away. Everyone sit back, relax, and when we come back, I will be speaking with burlesque queen and legend, Miss Dixie 
Evans. You are listening to The Hallie Casser Jane Show on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Today, The Hallie Casser Jane Show is sponsored by the 29th edition of Miami Book Fair International, November 11th through 18th in downtown Miami at Miami Dade College. Among the 300 plus authors from around the world, Tom Wolfe, Juno Diaz, Anne Lamott, Lemony Snicket, Robert Cairo, and Emma Donahue. For more information, visit MiamiBookFair.com. With the 2012 election upon us, you'll want your copy of Hallie Casser Jane's book, A Year in My Pajamas with President Obama, The Politics of Strange Bedfellows. Hallie's take on the American political scene is like nothing you've ever read. Smart, brassy, and thought-provoking, Hallie's view is that of an independent thinker with an uncommon sense of humor and a nose for the truth. Purchase your copy of A Year in My Pajamas with President Obama, the Kindle version, at Amazon.com. Books at Barnes & Noble stores and fine booksellers everywhere. And by the way, don't forget to follow Hallie and all of her musings on Facebook at www dot facebook dot com slash halliecasserjane on twitter at halliecj and at halliecasserjane dot com hi i'm linda evans and i'm a fan of the hallie casser jane show talk radio for fine minds Casa Jane show where today we're all about burlesque. My next guest is one of the reigning queens of the heyday of burlesque. There was Sally Rand, Tempest Storm, Gypsy Rose Lee, but there is only one Dixie Evans, and there ain't no one quite like Dixie, as you are about to discover. At 86 years young, Dixie is still showgirl gorgeous, both inside and out. She remains one of the ambassadors of the art of burlesque and through her efforts amassed one of the great collections of artifacts and memorabilia from the culture with her exotic world project. She delights in regaling with stories of her illustrious career and stands strong to making sure that burlesque and its stars are given their proper due. Welcome to the Hallie Caster Jane Show, Miss Dixie Evans. Dixie, you there? Hi. Hello, Hi. Miami. Uh, thank you. I'm very flattered and honored to be on your show. Oh, not uh, as flattered and honored as I am to have you with me. <laughs> Dixie, you. I've been talking to you for all week, and I feel like you're my new best friend. I adore you, and I know the oh. audience is going to love you, too. So, Dixie, let's start from the – what, darling? Let's start from the beginning. 86 okay. years ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 86 years ago, you were born and raised where? Uh, well, I was actually born in Long Beach, but uh, I was uh, my daddy was an oil man, and part of my early, uh, I went to Australia when I was only 19 months old, lived in the outback, and my mother uh, was not a flapper, but it was the era, 
And can you imagine out in the outback with, uh, uh, you know, emerald green shoes with gold high heels and black satin shoes with big rhinestone buckles? <laughs> but that was what the, was happening here in the United States. And then I came back to uh, America where I was born and raised in the oil fields in Bakersfield, California. And uh, then my father was killed on an oil derrick. And uh, my mother and sister and I were left with nothing. And so I begged Mommy if we could possibly move to Hollywood. Because in the 30s, I was always looking at Gene Harlow and, uh, and all of those movies. And I, like every other little girl, mostly you idolize. The, the big stars in the movies. So we moved to Hollywood to satisfy, <laughs> to satisfy me. And my mother has never really worked. Uh, in those days, the wives didn't work. The husband made the money and so forth. So she was kind of uh, left um, uh, in a lurch with two girls, my sister, who was three years older than me. Well, we finally, uh, my sister married uh, her high school boyfriend when World War II broke out, and she left uh, for uh, Tennessee someplace. At any rate, I finally got to Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, thinking it was going to be, oh, my goodness, it's uh, a very turmoil little girl I was. I really was. I, I, I just was lost. But I did have the hankering to be in show business, mostly uh, dancing. I did take dancing lessons, but I'm not too good at dancing. But I finally um, worked in many little chorus lines in Hollywood. Uh, Every big nightclub would have not a big chorus line, maybe four girls, you know. And we would have gone to the movie and seen Betty Grable. Everybody loves a baby. That's why I'm in love with you. And we'd quick work up a little act for that. And we'd travel to Alaska. Uh, we worked there. And in, um, uh, it's very, very uh, cold three months out of the year. And we endured that. And then we played Seattle. We just, and then we also played Mexico, which I absolutely love. Mexico, uh, played Mexico City, and then we also played um, uh, not Tijuana. Well, we went through Tijuana, but um, I can't think of that other city where we were. Anyway, uh, the little chorus lines was really uh, a big, big helpful uh, to my career. Because you were you let me let me interrupt one second. You were absolutely gorgeous. I mean, gorgeous first of all. So you, <laughs> I mean, every picture that I have seen of you from your youth, oh my gosh! I mean, you were stunning. But I, what I want to know now is, so you said one thing in there. I want to. You said you were you had a you know kind of a, a, a little bit of a, a confused kid because you lost your father, I guess, and your whole family was uprooted and that yes. kind of thing. Um, but you also were very focused. You knew that you wanted to go to Hollywood. You knew you wanted to do it. But how did we get from Hollywood to burlesque? Uh, well. Um um, um, I'm, well, well, any, I was booked into a burlesque theater in Oakland, California, 
and uh, I was very haughty. I figured maybe I'd been in uh, a lot of little shows around Hollywood, and I was a little too good for burlesque, uh, in my opinion. Well, a girl in the in the theater, she yanked me out in the alley, and she blew smoke in my face, and she said, "Listen, bitch, if you think you're coming here and gonna break in and act and go uh, and get out on and go for the big time, uh, you better make it big, sister. Because if you ever come back here, we'll shun you, just like the Mormons." Well, now I I gotta go on stage, and I'm shaking like a leaf, and I'm trembling, and then. When the show was over, I loved burlesque. I thought, this is where I belong. And when I was booked in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, the big drum roll and, and direct from Hollywood, California, Dixieland, well, when I stepped on stage, my uh, lips curled up over my teeth. I couldn't get my lips down. It's called stage fright. The saliva leaves you. And I always thought of that girl, <laughs> uh, and I made it. I made it uh, to uh, Newark, New Jersey, where I met Harold Minsky. Now the name Minsky—that's a big name in burlesque. You better he's believe one, it. Yes, he's the one that uh, really dressed up the shows. It was classy, and uh, the comedians and the comics. My gosh, they are a riot. And uh, uh, I just worked with so many. And the night before my, my opening, I'd always run in and catch the show before. And by golly, the Minsky show was very classy. Well, anyway, I, um, I played all up and down um, the East Coast. Uh, I very rarely came back to California. Which Can I interrupt you for one can I interrupt you for one second? Because we are talking about Harold Minsky. I don't want to move past that. He did help you. What was the old Gypsy Rose Lee line, um, Dixie, that you had to have a gimmick? And he gave you your gimmick. He billed you as what? Oh, well, yes. I, when I uh, was on the stage, my first act, Mr. Minsky said, I'm going to call you the Marilyn Monroe of burlesque. I said, Mr. Minsky, everybody in Hollywood looks like Marilyn. He said, I can't help it. He said, we have a lot of people from uh, foreign countries here in uh, New York and Newark, New Jersey. And he said, they see Marilyn Monroe's name. They're going to buy a ticket. He said, that's what show business is about, making money, selling tickets, and producing the show. So I said, okay. So I went to my dressing uh, room and made my mouth a little bit more like Marilyn. And then when I went on stage, I said, well, it wasn't easy to become a movie star. Of course not. I had to walk and walk and knock on every agent's door, but I just had to reach the top. And then I went into a kiss on the hand. Maybe quite curly, nano. So uh, he came running to my dressing room. He said, I didn't expect you to do it the next show. I said, Mr. Minsky, I'm a long way from California. So from then on, I went to every motion picture. I was the first one in line in the movie when she opened up. And then I would run to my uh, uh, room and uh, grab up everything I could and, and create a scene from the movie. I did The Prince and the Showgirl. Oh, I did every one of her movies. 
a little bit of part of it, you know. You actually met her, too, didn't you? Huh? You met her. Didn't she come backstage to see you? Marilyn Monroe? I thought that I read that someplace. No, that's not true? I'm sorry, but uh, I did do one act that uh, created quite a uh, sensation. Uh, Elvis Presley hit so big, so quick, so fast in 53 that I quick did uh, Marilyn Monroe in love with Elvis as a teenager. And I, uh, on stage, had long blonde curls and a little bo- and bobby socks, just like a teenager, and a photograph of Elvis on my little desk where I was trying to do my homework. And then I stood up and said, oh, 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 Mr. Presley, I'll never forget how you walked out on that stage at the Olympic Theater in Miami. And you looked straight at me when you said, I ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> and then the band would play, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And I would shape out of the, uh, shake out of the skirt. And then uh, every record that Elvis made, the band would throw it on, and then, of course, the band would blast it out, and I would remove everything. But everything I took off, I would turn that photograph around so it would look Elvis was not looking at me. Well, anyway, uh, the act went over very good, and uh, so the next couple of days, the Mater D came to my dressing room, and he said, Dixie, you got three tables of women out there. Uh, usually it's the vice president of Coca-Cola or something. I said, so I ran out to the table and talked to these ladies, and they said, oh, Oh, thank you, thank you, Miss Evans. All we hear is Elvis Presley. What the heck? Who's Elvis Presley? <laughs> <laughs> so they had teenage daughters, you know, that um, were, um, well, Elvis did hit big because there was a saying going around at that time, who the hell is Elvis Presley? That's what a lot of men would say because he did hit big. He hit so big, so quick, so fast. So that was uh, one number. And then another time, Joe DiMaggio came in the club with uh, Skinny Diamato from the 500 Club in Atlantic City. And I said to my boss, I can't go on. I can't go on. Joe DiMaggio's out there. And he says, why do you think he came here? So I said, oh, okay. So my little bench, uh, I had a, a little throw over the top of it. It looked like a Yankee dugout bench. And I strolled on stage, you know, and I said, um, um, I was crying, and I had a long hanky, and I said, oh, 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 boo-hoo. Well, why shouldn't I go right ahead and cry? Joe, Joe just walked off and left me flat. Well, I'm sure glad he left his back. Oh, but life was beginning to drag, and things were becoming a bore. Well, between his old baseball and his spaghetti, and what's more, I just hate a man in bed who keeps yelling, what's the score? (laughs) Oh, so give him back his old liniment and his cold, (laughs) cold showers. And don't worry, if I need him, he'll answer my calls. Well, why, why would he answer my calls? That's very simple. Because I still got him by his New York Yankee baseballs. 
and in my white box fur, I would pull out uh, two uh, baseballs, and I would pitch them to fellas in the audience. Uh, well, Joe was there, and the major deeper, oh, Joe, he wants to sit with you. I was so embarrassed, my God. But he, he, Joe DiMaggio, they always said he was very quiet and shy. Yes, he is, yes. And let me let went, me interject two things. First of all, for those who don't know, Marilyn Monroe was married to Joe DiMaggio. Oh, so, that's true. Yeah, right. A lot of people in the audience may not be aware of that fact. Um, well, see, let, let me veer you true. off. Is that right? Let me veer you a little bit off because I want to ask you. You were just talking about something um, that I think is uh, I want to get to next, and that is the art of the tease. You did it better than just about anybody. Is that a lost art? Do women? Do you think women are know about this tease thing today? Well, I do believe that the gentlemen's clubs came in there for a long time, and if a gentleman had a date with a girl, he would not take her to a gentleman's club because they are just too brash. And uh, so uh, nowadays, uh, uh, when the burlesque came back, which I brought it back. Uh, they like to go, women like to go and see uh, what uh, the makeup is and the hairdo and, and the high heels and so forth. I believe the burlesque girls kind of lead the way with the exotic look. And I think, according to the news and what I see on TV, yes, girls do like to dress up and look extremely exotic, yes. Good. Life on the road in, in the environment that you grew up with, I'm, you know, we're in. What Was it tough? What, was it good times and bad times? Well, um, I uh, like I said, I did all of Marilyn's movies, including The Prince and The Showgirl. I had a life-size prince on stage with a throne, and then, of course, my little bench was covered royal purple. Uh, shrimp with rhinestones, and um, I did the same little act. That uh, and, I, and the prince, by the way, uh, I de- I would put my hand behind the dummy. He was a dummy, and we would waltz, and uh, we also drank champagne. I did a, a. You can't believe how I manipulated this dummy, and uh, I had a, a princess uniform. Now it was a real princess uniform. And a girl who was writing my book checked it out because I told her it was. And she said, by golly, you're right. There was the king of Spain's son lived in Havana. And he uh, came over to Miami and was drinking and got in a terrible automobile accident and had that uh, uh, where you bleed to death. And so the family eventually brought the the, uh, uniforms over to the Roni Plaza, which was a very beautiful hotel. It was gorgeous. And they had them in the lobby for sale. And I uh, was married to a prize fighter at the time. I said, Harry, I've got to have that costume. I've got to have it. It'll be good for my my act. So uh, the Prince and the Showgirl act that I did, the uniform was actually worn by a real prince, yeah. But so the good times and bad times. So I wanted to get back to that because I mean, come on, it's life on the road. There are men and, and leering at you, if you will. Did you ever like regret that that's the path that you took, or what? Did I ever regret? Yeah. Any regrets? Well, 
well, doing Marilyn, um, I, I, was, I, I, I really did uh, feel like uh, I didn't, at uh, one time I did not want to offend her uh, because everyone in the world idolized Marilyn. So I did change my attitude, and I did it much more calmer, realistic, because I didn't want to make a comic skit out of Marilyn. Out of Marilyn. Every act I did was very much realistic, yes. In fact, I had Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds come in, and Eddie Fisher said, Oh, my father, he's so crazy about Marilyn Monroe. I'm going to send him in tomorrow night. Would you sit and talk with him? I said, Sure, Eddie. I'll talk just like Marilyn for him. <laughs> so he came there, and I and I snuggled up to him, and he just stared. He was just... <laughs> Yes, uh, he was very impressed. I had quite a few other people in that same position. And, uh, oh, one fellow that used to come every solitary year, Walter Cronkite. Yes, a very famous news director for some of the younger people that don't know who uh, Walter Cronkite is. And he said, um, and he always came just about the week before the Kentucky Derby. So he insisted I go to the Kentucky Derby. He arranged everything. And uh, I did go to the Kentucky Derby, and he said, no, I want you to walk up to where you see me, and I'm going to say, oh, oh, look, folks, here comes Marilyn. And then I said, no, I'm not Marilyn. I'm performing at the Post Paddock Club. Well, anyway, uh, I had a very, very, uh, I owe my entire career to Marilyn Monroe and to Miami and Florida and all of that area because I was in the newspapers all the time and uh, I was very, very naive and I, I didn't even realize uh, how I penetrated. Like uh, the the Miami University um, had always beat uh, Pittsburgh for 15 years. So I was on a big float uh, and and going to Coral Gables and all around and everything. And then the professor, Dean Klaus, just before I was to enter the Rose Bowl, he, he made me, them take me off the float. And over the top it said, we've got the figures on Pitt. Well, that was the first time that Miami had lost to Pittsburgh in 15 years. Well, since I was taken off the float, I was home kind of crying and everything, and all of a sudden a knock came to the door, and they said, oh, oh, you're going to be on the front page, he said, uh, because the dean went, the dean Klaus stripped you from the uh, float, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Miami lost, and all the, and the, and they used, they were very upset, the university, that they took, they uh, sort of accused that of being the omen that made them lost the game, you know. Right. But who knows really? But uh, so I was, I was so bad, I felt so bad. I went to the movies. I was crying because they took me off that float. And when I came out of the theater, I looked on the front page and I said, "Oh my goodness! I wonder what Marilyn's on the front page for." My gosh, it's me. And the whole <laughs> big article was about. The kids were all mad at, at Dean Klaus. Oh, my God. I love that. Listen, you told me a great story yesterday um, that I, I want you to tell on air, and it was the one about the Place Pigalle, your last performance in Miami at the Place Pigalle anyway. Do you remember? Yes. 
Tell us, tell, oh, tell everybody yeah. that. We only have a few minutes left, so I'm watching the clock. So let's go. Yeah, Walter Cronkite used to come every year. Oh, and uh, then uh, when Marilyn Monroe uh, went to the hospital in New York and she did die, uh, I was crying hysterical. And I did call New York, and I, uh, Walter Cronkite. And uh, they said, who's calling? I said, Dixie Evans. And all of a sudden, Walter's voice came on. And I said, oh, Walter, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to send flowers. I'm so confused. I don't know anything. He said, I'm going to patch you straight through to Hollywood. And when you are come up to uh, New York, come on in and see me, and we'll go out and break a glass together. And uh, that was the last I talked to Walter Cronkite. And sure enough, Hollywood came right in, and then they told me right where to send the flowers. Now, this prize fighter, Harold Bradle, that I was married to, uh, he had a lot of friends in Jersey that he grew up with and all of that way back. And I, he said, I know a guy, his daddy owns a big flower shop. And, and I said, oh, good, get the flowers. I didn't have any money at that time, much, but, you know, I said, oh, yes, he said, what do you want? I said, I want a big white heart with one red rose in the center. Why, I don't know. I just rattled it off. Well, lo and behold, it was at Marilyn's funeral. And then there was a book that came out, mislaid in Hollywood. And on one page it said there were, uh, he collected all of the little cards that people had mailed uh, little uh, tack little things to all the flowers that were at Marilyn's funeral. And he said, two people stand out, Dixie and Dutch. He said, we don't know who they are. Well, Dutch was Ronald Reagan. Right. They did call the, uh, Ronald Reagan Dutch way back in his uh, school, you know, early. Uh, he was a baseball player. Uh Right, Ronald exactly. Reagan. He was always known as, I think it was a character he also played in a movie. Dixie, I have to stop you for a sec because I'm going to tell a story that you're not going to tell, which is because you, you can't, I don't know if you remember, but she told this to me yesterday. I want everybody to hear this great story. She was at the place Begal, which was the big place in Miami. And yes. she, you were wearing a white, gorgeous fur. And you were done, right? Do you remember yes. this? You told me this yesterday, and you I'm trying to remember. <laughs> okay, and you, I know, I'm going to see if I can remind you, and you said I'm, you, you flashed your body, your gorgeous body, and walked out of the theater and said, I'm done, and she had a, you had a pink Cadillac, I think it was, or pink car. Yes, I had a pink Cadillac convertible. And you got into it, and you drove away. You told me you never looked back. That's right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I love that story, and I want that to be the last of the conversation because <laughs> I have this image of you like, forget it, it's with me forever. I could talk yeah. to you forever, uh, Dixie. I adore you. I can't thank you enough for being on the show and for sharing so much of your life with us. Um, you're just you're a gem, uh, and you're welcome back anytime. If you are in Vegas, by the way, go visit the Museum of Burlesque. It's all the doing 
of this wonderful woman who started all collecting all the burlesque uh, uh, things that she could ever find, the artifacts in, with the Exotic World Project, and they're now at the museum, the Burlesque Hall of Fame. And I hope you'll all go when you're in Vegas to see this thing because this woman loves what she did, stands by what she did, and shared what she did. So, my darling, hugs to you, Dixie. There are a lot of artifacts that are treasured in the museum, and there's you. The Treasure, Dixie Evans. Okay, here we are. Um, we are now going to introduce you to somebody very special also. Her name is Angie Pontani. She is burlesque extraordinaire, the Italian Stallionette. She is one of few involved in the uh, uh, the work. I can, I'm going to say the word. <laughs> I love the word that we now have for for your business. Um, Decist Arts, who shimmies and she shakes on stages around the world, as well as carries her art into other fields and genres. A child of New York and a key player in establishing New York City's burlesque scene, this bump and grind bombshell has spread the gospel of burlesque across the globe for over a decade. The New Yorker calls Angie first rate the perfect centerpiece, and rightfully so, since her signature acts and productions all set standard for style and class. I think she's a fitting follow-up to the great Dixie Evans. Hi, Angie. Welcome to the Hallie Caster Jane Show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. Listen, darling, Andrea Louise. Louisa Pontani. Yeah, Louisa Gabriella Pontani. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. When you were a child growing up in Trenton, New Jersey, right? Yeah. I'm from New Jersey. Oh, no uh, way. Yeah, there you go. Uh, was being a burlesque queen the thought that you would uh, you would become when you grow up? Um, Kind of, in a way. I mean, I had grown up in this really over-the-top Italian family. I mean, like Christmas dinner was basically like a production, you know, like it could have been in a movie in my house. My parents are very over-the-top and... You know, instead of listening to, you know, New Kids on the Block, I listened to Frank Sinatra. Instead of watching cartoons, I watched James Cagney movies and Busby Berkeley musicals with my dad. So I wanted to be Rita Hayworth. And, you know, by the time I became of age to do something like that, a burlesque dancer was the closest second that I could find. (laughs) Well, it was a good choice because you do it quite well from what I've seen. And I've been following you all week long. Um, Let's get to the question I know a lot of women want me to ask you. So, And let's get that one out of it. What does it feel like to take your clothes off? public um you know i don't take them off in the general public (laughs) i keep them on when i'm out and about town i only take it off on stage and it feels great i mean for me it was never actually anything that i gave a second thought to because when i get on stage for me it's about the performance and i i think i might be a little bit crazy but i was never actually had this thought like oh, I'm going to take my clothes off, it makes me nervous. It was, oh, my God, I'm going to dress up like a crazy jungle girl and dance all over the stage and play the bongos, and by the end of the number, I'll be in pasties and a G-string, but who cares? It's going to be so much fun getting there. I mean, it was just something that never really crossed my mind. <laughs> I think that's great. The art of the tease, is that what is that what spurs you? Well, absolutely. You know, I mean, a burlesque dancer's, you know, five to ten minute journey on stage is all about the tease. The majority of the time that you're up there, you're in this elaborate costume and in various stages of undress. But most burlesque performers are in their, you know, final pasties, G-string or whatever they happen to be wearing 
on stage for about 15 seconds, you know. So it's just really about the journey, and you can get very theatrical with it, and it's just so much fun to come up with these different ways to tease and titillate the audience, and that's what gets the big response, you know. When you remove this amazing gown with one wave of your hand, it's like a magic trick, you know, and they cheer more for that than when they see, you know, your underboob. It's, you know, it makes it much less of a big deal, <laughs> the nudity element of it. The, um, the, the, you talk about uh, that. Talk, talk to me about this. You're a contemporary performer in what we are calling now a, it's a neo-burlesque movement, right? Yes. Okay. And so I'm curious as to um, how you think you guys do it differently than, let's say, a Dixie Evans did it. Well, I mean, there are some uh, very realistic differences to the numbers. Like when Dixie was doing her numbers back in the days, those girls were on stage for 15 and 20 minutes at a time doing these huge productions. I think now the general public has a much shorter attention span, so a general act will be, you know, five to five, seven minutes long. But the main differences, I think, is that, you know, it, it's more of the society around us and the changes that the feminist movement has made. You know, burlesque now, this renaissance, is really female-driven. I mean, you have to look far and wide to find a man in the burlesque movement that, you know, is you know, producing and putting on shows. There's maybe a handful of them. It's really an industry that's been taken over by the ladies, and we run it, you know. <laughs> it's our playing field now, and that's a major difference as well, you know. And, of course, circumstance, too. You know, as Liz Goldwyn talked about, a lot of these girls back in the day didn't feel like they had choices. And because of them and the feminists that have gone before us, we have so many choices. So we choose to do this, and we make it our own. And I think that that's one of the things that, women can relate to when they see these performances and feel empowered by because the reality is the audience in a burlesque show is typically heavier female than male. And why do you think that is? Because I don't think that's the way it used to be. Well, no, certainly not. And that, again, is one of the differences. It's a reclaiming of femininity, I believe. You know, I think feminism has, again, progressed to this place where girls, especially in my generation, have just grown up saying, you know, I, I am smart. I can do everything you can do. Maybe I can do it better. And I can look super hot while I'm doing it. There's no crime in, you know, embracing your female charms and your figure and showing it off and, you know, using it as a tool and in your work or anything, you know. I mean, you can have both things. You can have brains and you can have beauty. And the burlesque movement really embraces that. And it does it without a lot of airs, too. It does it on a, on a full welcoming level. There are performers of all shapes and sizes. You don't have to be a model. You don't have to be six feet tall. You know, it's a very, as long as you're a good performer, that that's what counts. Yeah, you 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 got like the best body, didn't you? Win awards? For yes. <laughs> you <laughs> work out you. like a son of a gun, or is it just the dancing that does it well, for you? Well, I, I love working out. I love being healthy. I like jumping rope. You know, I love going to the gym. It's very relaxing for me. And I dance. I dance. You know, I dance around my house all day long. So I just try to keep very physical. You uh, in 2008, you were indeed crowned Queen of Burlesque, Miss Exotic World. Miss Exotic World, I guess, was Dixie's from Dixie's thing, right? Yeah, um, kind of thing. Um, uh, and you got that as much for your stage prowess as for your PR ability. And I want to talk to you about that. You are an extraordinary self promoter. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, wow. There's a lot of what. That's a lot of what gets to the performer to the top, isn't it? And I think. 
Yeah, I I absolutely think so. I mean, I learned very early on when I started going full-time as a burlesque performer that if it's something that I wanted to do, you know, it was this kind of, it's this new industry where we're all kind of finding our way in it, but that I would have to really, you know, get in on the business side as well and learn how to promote and learn how to produce. And, you know, to be a professional performer, it's not about those five minutes that you're on stage. You know, it's about seven days a week, 24 hours a day, just promoting yourself and producing shows and, you know, taking great pictures and just really branding yourself and making a strong product. You know, it's it, it's not all the glamour of, you know, dancing across the stage and the footlights. You know, it's it's a normal job, too. It's a normal job, too. I think that's yeah, a very good point uh, and, and well taken because I don't think people realize how hard you work. Um, in your press kit, you say that you mix glamour of yesteryears with contemporary sensibility. I mean, I know you love all the clothes of the 40s and the design of the 40s in your home and stuff. Contemporary sensibility, what is it? And did women lose something on the way to modernization? Well, I think with contemporary sensibility, I refer to a few things. Like, I have tattoos. You know, this is um, something that is very contemporary. Um, And also, we do things like shorten the shows a little bit for today's attention span. And I really, like, as Travis was talking about, I love the old comedy and the humor in the skits, and we try to bring that back as well. But I do feel that some women, you know, have lost a little bit of something on the road to modernization. And and some women feel that they have to kind of hide away the sex side of themselves in order to be a successful businesswoman, and I, I just think that's wrong. You know, I just, I have a natural inclination towards four-inch high heels and red lipstick and you know padded bras, and I don't think that that makes me a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> or titillating either, because that's just part of being a woman. It's I what think I that, do. Uh, I think Liz, <laughs> yeah, Liz, Liz addressed that nicely, I thought, in her uh, segment. Yeah, this this thing about deep seated retro base and cutting edge innovative drive that you've talked about. Okay, does one take precedence over the other? Does cutting edge sell over sweet nostalgia with this neo burlesque, or is neo burlesque burlesque an appeal to a sense of nostalgia? Well, I think the thing that's amazing about neo burlesque is that it is cutting edge and it is nostalgia mixed together, and that's the the real winning combination. I mean, I think everybody gets kind of pulled on their heartstrings or, you know, an emotional base when you see, like, this retro nostalgic image because it means something to all of us somewhere in our brains, you know. But then when you can mix the contemporary into it as well, you know, that opens you up to a whole new fan base, you know. And I've been, I've performed at shows where I've had a 95-year-old guy in the audience celebrating his birthday and an 18-year-old who, you know, just read about burlesque and Cosmo. And, and for me, that's that's the home run. And, and I love being able to bring those worlds together, you know. Mm-hmm. You didn't know men in the 40s and 50s, obviously. No. But <laughs> um, the men in your audience today, talk. To, can you tell me a little bit about them? I, I, I think that women who are listening to this would be curious as to how men respond to you. Um, you know, men who come to our shows now, you know, uh, often dragged by their girlfriends, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they don't really necessarily know what to expect. But there's something about a burlesque show, while it is sexy, it evokes a different feeling than if you were at a gentleman's club. The audience gets really involved, and there's cheering, and there's, you know, applauding, and hooting and hollering, but it's really not done in this kind of crash, crash, 
fashion, it's in this kind of a moment where we're all in together and they're just, you know, cheering on the show and getting into it. And, and it's everyone who does it. It's not just the men. And in terms of diversity, I mean, it's just burlesque draws a great diverse crowd. And there's tons of gay men that come out to these shows, tons of straight men. And again, the couples, ladies dragging their boyfriends, and I don't think their boyfriends are too upset to be dragged to a burlesque show. <laughs> I love it. Now, we talked about your savvy at PR. Let's talk about your producer abilities. You're the co-founder and co-producer of the longest-running annual burlesque festival, the New York Burlesque Festival. Yeah. You produced 2010, the Burlesque Hall of Fame's The Titans of Tees, 53rd Annual Strip Tees Reunion Showcase, and the Saturday Night Competition. You are the creator of the off-Broadway hit This is Burlesque, and you are the producer of the ongoing U.S. tour Burlesque, burlesque of Hades, mm-hmm. all just a part of what you've produced. You have a knack for this production and marketing, so you're smart as well as, se- as sexy. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I, like I thought I'd say that. And I, I'm using this as a lead-in because I know that mm-hmm. you and Trav have this thing yeah. going on on October 12th, Burlesque mm-hmm. of Hades, directed by Trav. Trav. Yeah. Right. And it's opening at the uh, Soho Theater. So tell us a little bit about what people can expect when they go well, there. Well, I'm so excited to be working with Travis D. And I've always had this dream of really bringing back a classic burlesque show, including all the skits and all the bits and these old routines that they used to do, like the Transformer or the Post Office which are these really fast and fun blackout skits that were such a huge part of burlesque. And I've actually seen Dixie do them before, and that's really an amazing thing. So, you know, I contacted Trav a few months ago, and we started working on this, and we opened on October 12th. And it's just, it's a show unlike any other I've done because it is really staged, and it's really reminiscent of what you would have seen in a Broadway uh, house in the 1940s or early 50s, but yet we have modernized it a little bit, you know, doing little changes in the casting and changing some gender roles and doing little things like that to make it more modern for our audience and kind of give it a a new kick. I'm very excited about it. I hope you guys are going to film this. Absolutely. Great, because I know we're going to see it. I can't get to New York. Yeah, well, we're going to be every Friday night, so you might have to come to New York. (laughs) I just might have to come there. Um, Question for you. If you hadn't been a burlesque queen, and I think you are, what would you have done? Um... If I, I have no, I think this is really my life calling. I can't imagine anything else that I would have done, um, but I probably would have gone into childcare or something like that, which is the ap- absolutely opposite side of the world. But that's what I did before this. I, I taught arts in uh, in like um, in no nursing kidding, school. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago, but yeah, I love kids and I I love doing art programs with kids. So while that may be the exact opposite of something that anybody would have thought, I would say that's probably what I would have done. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, there's a bit of uh, for all her fans out here. They didn't know that one. So I'm reading something. Here's a quote from your bio that you sent me. For as youthful, as energetic, as much of a worldwide superstar as, as she is, Angie Pontani is just a grandmother at heart. Yeah. One who enjoys cooking, gardening, crocheting, watching old westerns, and playing with her crazed dog. Now, yes. Angie, mm-hmm. PR yes. or true? No, oh, it's true. I'm a total grandmom at heart. I mean, I can tomatoes. <laughs> I have my big garden. I cook all the time. I play with my nephews who live upstairs for me constantly. I mean, I, I'm a total nerd. People will meet me at a show and, you know, get to know me and we become friends, and they think that I'm going to be this one way, and I'm exactly the opposite. <laughs> 
Oh, my God. Given a choice, grandmother or burlesque queen? (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll stay with burlesque queen. (laughs) I love it. Let me tell you what. Angie, you are a trip. Everybody who I worked with this week on this show, I have to say, are the nicest people in the world. There are no people like show people. Angie Pontano, thank you for being with me on the show. Good luck with the uh, burlesquepades. You're quite welcome. If you are in New York, October 12th, don't miss burlesquepades at the Soho Theater. Two great people, Travis D. and Angie Pontani, are involved. Two people who I now hope will be able to call friends of the Hallie Jane Show. It's going to be a top-notch show. I promise for more information, visit www.burlesqueapades.com. And for my friends across the pond, Angie Pontani will be touring Spain November 4th through the 14th. Visit Angie on Facebook at Angie Pontani and Twitter at Angie Pontani and our website, AngiePontani.com. Again, Angie, I can't thank you enough. Up next week on the Hallie Caster Jane Show, I will be exploring the lives of three celebrities, three icons of our time, the incomparable Audrey Hepburn, the remarkable Julia Child, and the greatest star, Barbara Streisand. When author Bob Spitz joins the show to talk about his new book, Deary, the Remarkable Life of Julia Child, author William Mann about his biography, Hello, Gorgeous, Becoming Barbara Streisand, and uh, with Margaret Cardillo about her delightful, delightful book, uh, called Just Being Audrey. Child, Hepburn, Streisand, Cardio, Man, Spitz. Next week, October 10th, 3 p.m. Eastern, here on the Hallie Caster Jane Show. Talk radio for fine minds and lovers of fine biographies. Stay in touch, won't you? You can visit me at HallieCasterJane.com, on Facebook at HallieCasterJane, and on Twitter at HallieCJ. I love to hear from you. Our podcasts, by the way, are available to listen to free on iTunes under the Hallie Caster Jane Show. You can also listen to us on the mobile site, mblogtalkradio.com, and on HallieCasterJane.com. Please do. So, till we meet again, this is Hallie Caster Jane. It's a wrap. You have been listening to The Hallie Casser Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. The Hallie Casser Jane Show airs Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Thank you for listening to The Hallie Casser Jane Show.